This is Main Street. I'm Alicia Heglinthorpe. Coming up later in the show, we travel to Antler, about an hour north of Minot, where they're restoring the Antler Town Square building for use as a museum. We'll get a glimpse of that. But first, we discuss a very thought-provoking topic with our guest, UND Professor of Philosophy, Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. This month's edition of Philosophical Currents asks, what does it mean to be a conservative or a liberal? So how does one have this conversation? I mean, it's, it's a really... It's a really hot button to press. There are two ways that I like to deal with this. The first is to point out that this isn't about personal opinion, but it really is about identity. And that's exactly backwards from the way that we're taught it. You know, in school, they tell us we have a bunch of opinions. We look for the political party that supports our point of view. We join it. But that's not the way it works. It's actually upside down. What really happens is that we're raised to identify as a Republican or as a Democrat. We look at our friends, we look at our family, we look at our environment, and we strive to be a good whatever that is. So if we want to be a good Republican, we're going to want to be pro-life. If we want to be a good Democrat, we're going to be pro-choice. And as we grow older and as we become more independent, We question those values depending on Mm -hmm. how far we travel, whether we go to college, whether we have different experiences, right? One of the things that you and I have talked about before is the fact that the greatest uh, influence on whether people accept gay marriage is whether or not they have gay people in their lives, right? So part of the issue here is that when we are disagreeing with people, we are undermining or challenging their identity. And it becomes very, very intimate and very, very defensive quickly. And you have to get past that. The other way, which I'll stop in a second so you can respond, Mm -hmm. is to think about it, what these words conservative and liberal actually mean. But that's a little more complicated. So, So I'll talk about the identity thing first, if you want. Well, I'm I'm glad that you say that's how we identify. Um, But there's also, maybe this point of view, if you didn't have that identification of being a Republican or a Democrat or, you know, red versus blue, and you're more of an independent, how does that fit in this conversation? Well, independent is an identity as well, right? And so there are definitely people who pride themselves on not following the crowd or pride themselves on making their own decisions. I think a lot of people claim their independence when they're not. I think independence is largely a posture in order to say, I believe this thing, but I'm pretending to be open-minded. I believe this thing, but I'm pretending to have this conversation with you so I can really persuade you. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't people who are outside the two-party system who are opposed to it, who find themselves much further to the left, say, or want to take the green position or or, or want to step outside the United okay. States system okay. as a whole. But the word independent itself is the identity of someone who likes to think they're above it all or undermining it all. And mm. I think that that's a lot less genuine than people like to say. Well, let's move that independent word aside here. Now, I I know so many people in my circle that have uh, made it a point to stay away from family members who have these extreme opposing views. Like, I mean, it has literally ripped apart families, you know, because 
um, and you said this earlier, I'm like, it, you are undermining my identity and what I find that you have to say is offensive to me. You know, so how can we come together again with our families and our friends here in, in hopefully in the near future and have these relatable and calm discussions without feeling offended? Do you think that can even happen? Well, first of all, I think the term offense is very funny because it's used again in this political weapon way, right? Someone will say, you disagree and you, uh, I'm offended or you use this language and I'm offended, you know, from the perspective of most women in this country right now, given what happened the last uh, few days, what's more offensive than taking away people's rights? What's more offensive than threatening people with a weapon? Mm -hmm. What's more offensive than denying people's religious freedom? For example, in the Jewish religion, abortion is a moral priority in certain circumstances. So the idea that someone is offended because of a conversation as compared to the offense of taking people's rights away why is using a bad word or disagreeing with someone more offensive than taking away their fundamental personhood? But let me, let me take a step mm -hmm. back a second. I think it's really important to understand what the word liberal and conservative mean in this context um, and actually in general. So what I like to do with my students is I like to have people imagine – a spectrum, right? And we can go from left to right. And I'll talk about that in just mm -hmm. a second. Okay. What you have is in the middle, you'll have what's, you know, a centrist. And then on the right, you have a conservative. What does it mean to be a conservative? A conservative wants to conserve the status quo. A conservative wants things to stay the same. All else being equal from the conservative point of view, change is bad, right? So the uh, inherent conservative position, and this starts out with Edmund Burke, uh, the first modern political uh, conservative political philosopher uh, right around the time of the French Revolution, which is going to become important in a second. Um, he basically argues that change is so jarring that the change has to be inherently massively important. Otherwise, it undermines society. Now, if you go further to the right – you stop having people who think that change inherently is bad and you start having reactionaries, which is people who want to go back to a previous time, people who thought it was better before, right? The idea of the fall religiously always is, you know, we're, we are we are degenerating. We have to go back to a perfect time. And, and most Republicans now are not conservatives. They're reactionaries because they want to go back to the 1950s or Reeve <laughs> Roe versus Wade or something mm -hmm. like that. We could talk about that. On the left, you've got um, – we'll call them liberals. And, and, and for liberals, they believe that all else being equal, change is good, that what you want is to progress, right? That's where the word progressive comes from. And in order to progress, you need change. And so if we have a static society, if we have a conservative society, things never get better. Yes, things can sometimes get worse, but more often than not, th we, we are trying to make things better, but we're trying to make things better progressively, um, step by step, incrementally. If you go further to the left, then what you get are, for lack of a better term, revolutionaries, people who don't want uh, incremental change, but they want massive change. They want to overthrow the whole system or undermine or, or shift the whole system. And so the question to have before you have the, the the question about you know your your initial opinion is how do you feel about change? 
Is change good or bad? Do you want to move forward towards an imaginary future that you think will be better off? Or do you want to go backwards to an imaginary history that you think is better off, right? Because, of course, there are plenty of people who thought that think his life was better in the 1950s, but they weren't black. They weren't gay, right? They weren't poor. And so – it's better for one person. It's better for another. But let me let me say one other thing, and this is going to complicate things even more. Mm-hmm. The idea of left and right comes from the French Revolution. During the French Revolution, there were people who were pro um, aristocracy, pro pro the, pro the king and the queen, and then there were people who were interested in getting rid of the aristocracy. In the assembly. The people who were pro-aristocracy would sit on the right. They were the conservatives. They wanted things to stay the same. And the people who wanted things to change, to progress, to get over the aristocracy sat on the left. Now, this is where we get the ideas from left and right. That's where the term comes from. And this is going to provide a missing piece in the whole discussion, which is when the people were sitting on the right, they were worshiping, in a sense, the aristocracy. They thought that kings and queens were nobles ordained by gods. They think that they should have that special deferential uh, attitude. And one of the things that runs through American conservatism is that conservatives tend to worship, and I use that term loosely, uh, corporations or God or religion or the Constitution. This is why the American right talks about these ter- these these texts and these and these positions in such holy terms why they argue inconsistently but nevertheless they argue the constitution has to be the constitution that they wrote in the 1780s right mm-hmm. because we have to worship that now that goes back to identity because who you worship and why you worship them is central to your identity whereas the left worships a kind of individualism, a kind of uh, um, personal individual fulfillment and betterment that is internal rather than external. So those two axes, to pardon the term, the idea of change versus no change and worship versus lack of worship is the intersection of our debate uh, and, and the intersection between the conflict between conservatives and liberals in the United States. And that's why it's so complicated, because it's not simply about what your position on social welfare is. It's about what you think your fundamental stance to problems should be and how to solve them. Okay, so then I'm thinking a way to describe conservatism versus liberalism is to say it's religion versus humanism. That is a very, very common way of doing it. The problem is it paints all of religion in the same brush, right? And so there are plenty of humanistic religions, right? <laughs> what I'm going to say mm-hmm. is, is, is kind of weird, but, but it's true. There are plenty of rabbis in the Jewish religion who don't actually believe in God. <laughs> Why? Because Christianity is a religion of faith. And whatever you do, as long as you believe it, um, as long as you have that faith, you are acting properly and morally. Now, you know, Christian denominations disagree as to, and you'll recognize this phrase, um, whether faith is is it uh, is is um, belief alone or whether it's founded act. So Catholics believe that you can't have faith unless you act accordingly, whereas Protestants tend to believe that as long as you be- uh, believe, as long as you have faith, your acts are, are secondary. In Judaism, what you believe about God is irrelevant. 
what you what you you can doubt God, you can question God, you can have all these things as long as you do what you're supposed to do, as long as you follow the law, as long as you engage in justice. And so for many people in the Jewish religion, and this is also true, I think, for Buddhists and for Hindus in, in, in many respects, as long as you act appropriately, you can be a humanist and you can behave like a humanist without having that that sense of religion. So in the American debate, conservative tends to mean a particular kind of Christianity, in particularly Protestant Christianity, although there are certainly overlaps because Islam has a particular view, say, on abortion and Orthodox Jews will often have a particular view on abortion. And so there's an overlap. But what we mean by religion in the United States tends to be Protestantism. So religion can be, okay, Protestantism or religion, put that here where you need it. You know, people can discuss that within their own circles. But then when it comes to politically putting it in government settings, it's it's to me it seems though that that separation of church and state isn't really prevalent it's a beautiful question alicia it's the perfect question frankly because it brings us to the abstract problem that we're dealing with to the practical problem which is the complaint that many people have about the supreme court right now is that they are acting from a religious perspective rather than from a perspective of pluralism and diversity that historically you know the, the supreme court has had its ups and downs right depending on your perspective but historically the goal was to allow as much religious freedom as possible. So, you know, um, people talk about Roe v. Wade a lot. Well, there was a, um, there was a second case uh, that, that defended the, the pro-choice position, which was Casey. And in Casey, the majority justices wrote, look, we wish that abortion wasn't protected by the Constitution. We ourselves don't like abortion, and we think that it's problematic – but we have to abide by precedent. And the Roe v. Wade precedent is that women have the right to have an abortion. And so we uphold that right in the interest of the st stability of the law. This new decision says, basically, there's no inherent right to abortion because abortion is murder. And that's a religious question. That's a Christian perspective in particular. And our last, you know... Uh, appointed justices were all explicitly Christian, right? And so your your assertion about the doubt of the separation of church and state is the very key of this discussion because critics of this position will say what you are doing is enforcing your particular point of view mm -hmm. as opposed to creating a framework that allows people to choose for themselves. And if you look at, say, the discussion about the Second Amendment, which doesn't seem like it's religious, what you'll get is this very particular brand of American Christianity and American Christian nationalism, which is not the same thing, which sees guns and as a particular kind of freedom inherent in the Christian point of view. Now, that's a hard position to defend theologically because Jesus's position was to turn the other cheek and to love thy enemy. But nevertheless... That's how American Christianity has evolved. And that's why the Christian right in this country is inherently intertwined with the NRA, because there's somewhere along the way that Protestant point of view got intertwined with the attitude of 
individual self-defense and America as the shining light on the hill, the shining beacon that everyone has to strive for. So unless you parse out the religious stuff, you're not going to get to the humanist stuff or the constitutional stuff. So, so your question was 100% on the nose. We're talking with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a UND professor of philosophy on this monthly edition of Philosophical Currents here on Main Street. We're talking about what it means to be conservative or what it means to be liberal. So why is it so hard for liberals to understand conservatives or vice versa? I mean, you you alluded to it before. It's like it's that mind frame that you're you don't understand my religion. Well, you don't understand my freedom. Right. Well, there's a couple different factors. The first is we live in a fundamentally segregated society, right? Mm -hmm. And you can look around in North Dakota and you could see that there are very few Asians and there are very few African-Americans and there are very few Hispanics. And there are lots of complicated reasons for this and that this isn't anyone's particular fault, right? Uh, it's just the way it is, right? The, 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 the Stanley Cup was this week. There are very, very few African-American players in the NHL, right? Just like there are very few white players in the, in the um, NBA, although not the, the ratio isn't quite as, as stark. So – all of the diversity in our country tends to be in urban areas. And when you live in diverse areas, you are going to have almost always more liberal progressive opinions. When you live amongst like-minded people, you're going to have more conservative opinions. And so you get vast swaths of this country that are homogenous, that are rural or even suburban, and the two don't mix, right? I mean, look <laughs> – You've been in North Dakota your whole life. Mm. You know that for some folks in in Western North Dakota, Eastern North Dakota might as well be Minneapolis or Manhattan, right? You know, the Red River Valley isn't the real North Dakota. The real North Dakota is Western North Dakota, the Badlands, et cetera, et cetera. And so even in a state like ours, there is this, this sense of of liberal versus conservative geographically constructed based on mm -hmm. population density, diversity, homogeneity. And so if you have no idea what people live like, if you have no idea what they face, then it's very, very hard to identify. You know, I, I came from New York City. This is my 21st year in North Dakota. Um, I came from New York City and then I traveled around and then ended up and ended up here. And the, the rural experience was my diversity experience. If I heard someone in my apartment building in New York City or on the street speaking Spanish or speaking um, Persian or something like that, I didn't find it threatening. I didn't find it weird. I didn't mm -hmm. notice it. But if someone in, I don't know, can do North Dakota, just to pick something randomly, not to pick or steal <laughs> North Dakota, here's someone speaking um, Persian or, or Farsi, as it's sometimes called, um, they're going to notice that. They may find it interesting or fascinating or exciting or threatening, right? Right. For me... That wasn't a problem. But for me, the idea of telling the difference between a tractor and a combine, right, was bizarre. I remember the first time I rode my bike, uh, I was in the farmlands and there was one of these uh, combines that, that took up the entire road. And I'm like, oh, my God, where am I going to go? This thing is going to chop me into bits, right? <laughs> um, I had to learn how to deal with that. And so for me, the rural was the diversity experience. And so one of the things we need to do is to get New Yorkers to North Dakota, 
North Dakotans to New Yorkers and not just <laughs> Times Square and and get people to see how their lives are. Right. And and we see that in North Dakota itself, because how many people travel back and forth onto the reservation? Right. Mm-hmm. How many people uh how many how many non-native americans walk onto the reservation not for insidious reasons but just to you know be tourists and and don't feel threatened even if that threatened is entirely in their mind and how many folks who live on on the reservation walk off the reservation and feel threatened because people look at them strange because they have dark hair or or they have other semiotics of what it means to be native american even in north dakota forget everything else we've got the east west divide we've got the um reservation and non-reservation divide and if we can't have those kinds of intimate interactions and day-to-day sharing of a common project we're never going to be able to resolve our political differences I agree with you 100% on that one. Um, you know, I I come from this this perspective as uh, from an indigenous lens, okay? So, I base the fact that everything I do is because my ancestors couldn't use their voices. You know, we're talking about, you know, from the 1800s when when this country was settled and the settlers came here. Um, you know, history books even say Native Americans are extinct, which obviously we know isn't true. Um, but history uh, government, I should say, has admitted to the fact that these boarding schools really existed for the real reason of, you know, assimilating Native American children because they were savage and they needed God. And so there again is a pushed religion, a pushed thought to assimilate people into their culture. And, you know, that was, you know, how many years ago for, you know, a generation ago for some people, but when they first started these boarding schools, we're talking, you know, over 100 years ago. But to me, that mindset is still existing in parts of this state. Absolutely. Right. Go back to and, and, and hopefully I'll get the quote right. Uh, go back to the idea that to civilize the savage, you need three things, clothes, tobacco and whiskey. <laughs> right. That that, you know, how absurd that is and how horrifying that is. But let's mm-hmm. let's take this. Um, right. So here's one way of doing this. Right. There are people who are going to be listening to this who are going to get immediately defensive from hearing the indigenous point of view. Why? Because in North Dakota, the uh, the interaction between indigenous history and and, and colonial history mm-hmm. is 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 a place of, of great conflict. So people get defensive. So let me create an analogy. I think that that you can tell me if if, if this helps elaborate your point. Okay. Think about what it's like to be raised with an angry father and a scared mother. Right. Just wherever you are in the world, how you as a kid are going to be afraid to assert yourself. How you as a kid are going to be afraid when dad comes home, maybe he's drinking, right? I have a, I'm, I'm going to be very vague about this, but Adina ha, ha, has a friend who has an alcoholic father um, who's not in the picture anymore, but he used to be. And one day he came to pick her, uh, her up and he was obviously drunk and her demeanor changed instantly, right? Just instantly. She knew intimately just in the first contact that he was drunk and that his that the, her day was going to be like X, Y, Z. Now, you have kids and you want to break the cycle, but you can't. So you treat your kids hostily or the way that you learned or you try to fix it, but you don't have any role models. Now, 
go generation after generation, how many generations do you have to go before the effect of that angry father disappears? Mm -hmm. How many generations do you have to go before the effect of alcoholism disappears? Is it two? Is it three? Is it four? Now go back to the indigenous experience. How many generations do you have to go uh, before the, the, the boarding schools the impact of them disappear or the colonialism or the violence, especially when our solution is to segregate, right? Our solution is to put an environment where everyone every day, whether they're indigenous or not, is reminded of this history and reinforced in this history. Now, there's a real problem here, right? How do you integrate while preserving indigenous land? How do you create a a human one-on-one interaction while recognizing that there has to be a place of refuge that people can preserve their land, preserve their experience, preserve their history. And by the way, not for nothing, this is what safe spaces in colleges Mm -hmm. is trying to do, Mm -hmm. right? If you're a an African-American student, one of, you know, a hundred African-American students in the University of North Dakota, and you're tired of, 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 I don't know, being on all the time or being defensive all the time, having a room where you can just talk to other African-American students and just exhale for 10 minutes is essential to your mental health. That's why there's the Native American Student Association, right? That's why there's the Jewish Student Association. That's why there's, there's the Newman Center for Catholic students, right? Um, sometimes that, that, that cultural safe space, that that sense of enforced self-segregation is important. But if it's a way of life, then all it does is further divide. And I don't have the solution to this particular problem. I don't know how to integrate while still preserving native land. But at that central tension, it describes all of the conflict we've talked about so far. How does a person go away from this conversation knowing that they've learned something here? It's a beautiful question because this idea of learning, this idea of self-awareness is essential to the process. Look, a lot of this stuff, I don't necessarily believe that I would change anyone's mind from an interview on the radio. It happens, right? But I, I, I don't know that, and it's certainly not my job to do that. But what I do hope is that this conversation stays in people's minds and they think about it. And they Mm -hmm. bring it up with other people. And over time, they see analogies and common experiences and talk about it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is it's very easy, especially right now, to feel despondent. But at the same time, there are lots of wonderful things that are going on, right? I, (laughs) um, a, a Jewish expatriate New Yorker living in North Dakota, is having a really interesting, wonderful conversation. I'm a man with a woman with an indigenous background on a public radio station that reaches every single household in North Dakota, right? That's the wonderful thing about right. Prairie Public. Yeah. It reaches every single household for free. Please donate. <laughs> but for free. And that's amazing. And this is the first time in history that that's ever happened, right? So we have to find the victories where we can. Yeah. And we have to refine our vision of what America should be. And look, if your vision for America is a segregated white nationalist America that caters to your point of view, well, 
okay, I don't share that vision, but that's your vision and you're going to have opinions. But if you can't admit that publicly, if you can't admit that that's what's going on, then you feel bad about it. Not you're scared, but you feel bad about it and maybe you should reconsider. I am very, very proud and can be very public about my diversity-oriented um, point of view, but I also understand that there are definitely cultures – that have to be preserved, whether it's indigenous cultures or very conservative traditional religious cultures, right? The fact that we have a Hutterite community in the area, I think is wonderful, right? And so what you're willing to talk about in public and what you're willing to talk about in private reveals your true values. And you have to be open about those so that we can have the conversation, because if all we're doing is playing the part then there is no intimacy and political debate is inherently intimate. And if we push that aside, we're never going to be a true society and we're never going to be true friends in any meaningful sense. We're talking with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a UND professor of philosophy on our monthly edition of Philosophical Currents. Thank you so much for taking the time today and having this conversation with us. It was a pleasure to have this conversation with you. I really appreciate it. I often think of Jimmy Carter, who has spent his post-presidency working as Habitat for Humanity, mm -hmm. because that's what he can do. I can't build houses. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is what I can offer my community. And it's just, as I always say on my show, it's just a tremendous honor to be here. I really appreciate it.